Friends, it's good to be with you today. My name is Adam. If we haven't met, it's my joy to be one of the pastors here at our church. I want to talk to you uh, about a woman named Justine Sacco. It was December of 2013, and she was boarding an 11-hour flight to South Africa. And before her plane took off, she tweeted the following, and I'm going to give you just a cringe alert here, all right? Brace for impact. She said, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. Then she turned off her phone and the plane took off. She went to sleep and she had no idea that she had just piloted her public reputation uh, into a flaming ball of wreckage. Within hours, she was a worldwide trending topic online. And as reactions to her tweet grew, people put together that this was all happening while she was unavailable mid-flight. And, and, and so people began to anticipate her landing and discovery of all of the firestorm that she had started. One user remarked, all I want for Christmas is to see Justine Sacco's face when her plane lands and she checks her inbox and voicemail. Now, for some of us, we may be uninitiated. A hashtag is a way to organize information online. And, and, and that can take place quickly on social media. They can take a life of their own. Has Justine landed yet was a hashtag that began trending around the world. Took on a life of its own. Weeks later, a, a user wrote, man, remember Justine Sacco? Hashtag has Justine landed yet? God, that was awesome. Millions of people waiting for her to land. So her trip was cut short, as you might have imagined. Uh, she had worked at a PR firm and, and she lost her job. Uh, people began to threaten to boycott hotels she would be staying at on her trip, and she was concerned for her safety. Even today, this was almost 10 years ago, but I did this last week. If you Google Justine Sacco, the first result, result is a New York Times story that says how, Justine, how one stupid tweet blew up Justine Sacco's life. John Ronson is an author, and in his book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, he interviewed Justine Sacco. He also interviewed Gawker journalist Sam Biddle, and uh, this Gawker journalist was one of the people who originally brought some attention to Justine's original tweet. Biddle told Ronson, the fact that she was a PR chief made it delicious, and that while he didn't mean to ruin anyone's life, he would do the same thing over again. Biddle said this, that Justine would eventually be fine, if not already, Everyone's attention span is so short, they'll be mad about something new today. Last week, we talked about actions having consequences. And I just want to be very clear and unequivocal. I am not saying that the statement Justine Sacco made was in any way defensible. Uh, making a racially charged, glib comment about AIDS victims uh, is, is uh, not acceptable in any way. What I am saying is that multiple things can be true at the same time. So to me, three things are true. It's sad that Justine Sacco had that thought. And then it's sad to me that she thought that was an okay thing to share out in the world. But the third thing that I find sad is that so many people would take pleasure in voyeuristically watching and participating in her very public mortification. And so this is a prime example, Justine Sacco is, of cancel culture, right? She, she makes a, a clear mistake online, but then the mob descends on her. And, and I think it, it goes beyond accountability 
in two ways. We're trying to distinguish cancel culture from simple calls for accountability in the following ways. One, it's this mob mentality that becomes a form of social control. And especially in the case of Justine Sacco, the second element that differentiates cancel culture is the glee or the entertainment that people derive from this process. See, in cancel culture, there's no room for redemption. It's just searching for the next victim. Uh, When everyone can have a platform, there's plenty of willing victims, by the way. Uh, Who else joins me in saying, man, I'm glad all this stuff ain't around when I was younger. Anybody else have that thought? Oh, woo! In Disney's Onward, there's this evil gelatinous cube. I don't know if you remember that. It's this evil green cube that destroys everything in its path. Here we go. That's it. It mercilessly devours anything that stands in its way and then it goes on looking for its next victim. That to me is representative of cancel culture. There's no motivation of eventual redemption. It's just this cathartic pleasure that people get by seeing stranger sins brought to light while ours remain hidden. And so as I thought about Justine Sacco and, and this whole fiasco that continues to follow her to this day, I thought, how would I like to be best known for the worst decision I ever made. So I'm just trying to drum up a little empathy here. Again, not dismissing what she said, but how would you like to be best known for the worst decision you ever made? So in the series called Canceled, we're looking at the Christian response to cancel culture. What is it? Last week, we talked about the necessity of accountability and our desire, a lot of times, for others to be accountable while we don't apply that same standard to ourselves. You know, people mess up, that's reality, that isn't new. But what is new is that we can do so in very public ways that can spread very quickly and so can the outrage in return. And online especially, there's very little thought given to any restoration. The outrage blob just moves on. And so today I wanna explore what does recovery from failure look like? Once we have messed up, what do we do next after that? How do we enter into a process of restoration? Scripture records lots of human failure. One that's especially painful is the Apostle Peter's denial and betrayal of Jesus. And in John 21, it's one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, we see this amazing picture of Jesus' grace and we see redemption for Peter. But before we get to that, it's important to understand what Peter did leading up to this amazing redemption that Jesus offers him. And so what I hope we'll discover together as we study God's word is that Jesus will forgive you. People may need some time. Jesus will forgive you. People may need some time. The gospels are the four first books of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. That's a word that means good news. And they contain the life and teachings and death and resurrection, the biography of Jesus And one of those gospels is the book of John, the gospel of John. And in chapter 13, Jesus is in his final hours of this three-year journey with his disciples. He's about to be arrested and tried and executed. And Jesus is breaking the news to his friends that soon he will leave them. And they don't understand what this means. And in typical Peter fashion, he's among the first to speak up. He's a take charge kind of fella. So this is John 13, verses 36 and 37. Simon Peter asked, are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now. 
but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord, he asked. I'm ready to die for you. This, this is a high intensity situation. And you can tell in Peter's response that his expectation was that Jesus was, was about to lead like a military or a rebellion, like an uprising against the Romans who were occupying first century Palestine. And ever the idealist, Peter is ready for duty. I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus' response to Peter is an ominous one. Jesus answered, die for me. I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even knew me. So after Jesus' arrest, Peter suddenly, and he's asked repeatedly if he was one of the people who followed Jesus, and he denies it out of fear for his life. One of the interesting things about Peter's uh, betrayal and the prediction of Jesus is that it occurs in all four gospels. Uh, The fancy word for three out of the four gospels is uh, the synoptic gospels, like synonym. They contain a lot of the same beats. But John is like the weirdo gospel out of the four of them. There's probably a more scholarly way to say that, but uh, the gospel of John does not follow the narrative of the other synoptics. I can do that, but... You know, it's, it's kind of the outlier. And so when you see a, a story like Peter's denial, that's in all four of them, it's significant. It tells us it's a crucial aspect. It's a central part of the story. In Matthew's gospel, when Peter had denied Jesus for the third time, and then here's the rooster crow, just like Jesus predicted, we read in chapter 26, and he went away weeping bitterly. Peter had lied about knowing Jesus. He had gone back on what he told Jesus just hours before. I'm gonna die, I'm ready to die for you. And then he's confronted with his own shame as he weeps bitterly. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that in your life where it all just came crashing down on you, but that's what Peter's experiencing. And as we consider Peter's reaction, I think it's a good time to kind of dissect some of the things we experience when we fail. I think we can take a look at the difference and similarities between guilt and shame. So guilt is a feeling of remorse for something you've done. It's about responsibility. Shame is about how you're perceived, either by yourself, your own self, and how you perceive yourself, or how others are are perceiving you based on something you have done or something that's been done to you. That's very important. And so guilt, in a lot of ways, is, is about responsibility. I've done something bad. Shame is about perception. Well, I am something bad. The difference is subtle, but it's significant, isn't it? Or people now view me as a bad person or somehow unworthy, unlovable because of what I've done. And they can work in combination. In this instance, Peter's asked, well, aren't you one of his disciples too? That's in John 18, 25. Aren't you one of his disciples, somebody asked Peter. Now this is hours after Jesus' arrest. I imagine Peter is afraid for his life. But people are perceiving of him as being associated with that heretic that they just arrested, that rebel rouser. And so Peter feels shame because of his now association with Jesus. And so he denies it. And then he experiences guilt because of what he's done. Shame and guilt, these two things have a confluence and it results in Peter weeping bitterly. 
And so one of the, the, the tricky things we have to do if, if we're trying to take on a journey of restoration is deal with our guilt and our responsibility for what we've done, but then move past our shame. And friends, that's easier said than done. We could have a whole several weeks just on that concept alone. Now, for the sake of time, we're gonna fast forward through a lot, like a lot. After Peter's denial, Jesus is tried and crucified and resurrected. That's a packed sentence. Now, at this point in the book of John, Jesus has appeared to the disciples two times post-resurrection, but Peter's still in a funk. And in the conclusion of the gospel of John records a third appearance of Jesus to his disciples. We find that Peter's gone back to what he knew, fishing. That was how he made his living before Jesus. And in the aftermath of everything that happened, he went back to something familiar. Maybe that's a pattern you've done before. The disciples hadn't caught anything when they were out fishing. And this was kind of like a trend for Peter's life. Things just weren't going well. Not a lot of bites But all that was about to change because someone was calling out to the disciples on the shore and they recognized that it was Jesus. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, we read in verse seven of John 21, he put on his tunic for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water and headed to shore. So Peter once again brings the dramatic flair, right? He can't just row in with everybody else. He's got to take off his jump in, you know, he's, he's all in. And the disciples had been up all night fishing Exhausting work, surely they would be hungry and worn out. Let's read on in verses eight through 14. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore for they were only about a hundred yards from the shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. Fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to shore. There were 153 large fish and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. Not long before this episode, Peter had denied that he even knew Jesus. And this will tell you about all you need to know about Jesus. What is his response to Peter, the the traitor? He makes him breakfast. That's all you need to know, right? That's his response. This blows my mind. Jesus gives him the Cracker Barrel treatment, Corner Cafe, whatever, Kate's Kitchen. First watch, that's Jesus' response to, to, to Peter. It was Jesus who had originally called Peter out of his former existence as a fisherman. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? These former conversations Jesus had with Peter is very reminiscent of where they are now. It was Jesus who first called him out of this life of being a respectable fisherman And so I think a very interesting question, I don't think there's any definitive way to answer this, but what do you think Jesus meant when he said to Peter, do you love me more than these? What do you think these is? I imagine Jesus pointing back to the net full of fish that Peter had hauled ashore, or as he said, do you love me more than these, pointing to the fish he had just served Peter. 
I think these are the fish representing the life of familiarity that Peter had turned back to. Do you love me more than these? Jesus was asking Peter what he preferred. What do you love more? Your old life of familiarity and relative security and safety or a life full of faithful obedience in relationship to me? This is the first in a series of three times Jesus would ask Peter if he loved him. So Jesus said, Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Then Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Does this strike you as odd that Jesus asked Peter the same thing three times? I mean, if any of you have had children or are married or have been married, you understand you got to repeat yourself sometimes. Is to you that Jesus would do this? Like Peter said, Jesus knows everything. So why, why is he doing this? And so when we understand the circumstances of Peter's betrayal, we can now better appreciate his restoration. I love what biblical scholar William Barclay said about this exchange. Jesus asked this question three times, and there was a reason for that. It was three times that Peter denied his Lord, and it was three times that his Lord gave him the chance to affirm his love. Jesus, in his gracious forgiveness, gave Peter the chance to wipe out the memory of the threefold denial by a threefold declaration of love. I just love that so much. He gave him the chance to wipe the slate clean. One thing our society has very little tolerance for is being a traitor. It's, it's one of the most dishonorable, reviled things a person can be called. Again, here's all you need to know. You ever met any kids named Judas? Oh, this is my, this is my little son, Judas. You ever meet any? No. I've met lots of wonderful people named Peter. We remember him much differently. But when you think about it, what's the difference between Judas and Peter? Both chose their own agenda at the expense of their master. Both had regrets and guilt and shame. Scripture tells us that Judas' sin of betrayal of Jesus led him to take his own life. Imagine if he would have waited three days. Because that day by the sea, there on the beach, Peter was no different than Judas. He had stood on that beach a deserter, a defector, with his own self-preservation because Peter had pledged obedience and allegiance to Jesus, excuse me, to Jesus, to his own death. But then he acted like a coward when a little girl said, hey, didn't, weren't you with Jesus? The difference between Peter and Judas is that Judas underestimated Jesus' forgiveness. And so after Jesus had asked Peter what he loves more, he calls Peter to be a shepherd of the early church. And Jesus tells him that he's gonna do this into old age. And this tender, terrifying verse of what we're gonna read next is Jesus' prophecy of what following him is gonna cost Peter. 
verses 18 and 19. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. Now for a lot of my life, verse 18 kind of puzzled me. Like what was Jesus trying to say that, that you're going to be so old and hobbled that, that you're not going to be able to walk and people are going to have to lead you where, where you don't want to go as you stretch out your arms? Well, as, as I've reflected on this verse and read what lots of other smart people have thought about it, it's not stretching out your arms this way, but this way. And you'll be led where you don't want to go. Church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified under Emperor Nero. And so in our text today, and even the whole book of John ends with this gut-wrenching scene, the restoration of Peter, along with what it's gonna cost him to truly follow Jesus. And it was there on the same beach where Jesus first changed Peter's life when he said to him, follow me. He also foretells how his life will end. Now, some biblical traditions refer to John 21, the chapter, sometimes if in your Bible you see little headings, it'll say the restoration of Peter. But I think it really started much before John 21. Think back to our earlier verses from John when Jesus said to Peter, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. Jesus predicted Peter's restoration before his betrayal. And on the beach, Jesus cooks him breakfast and he invites him back into relationship before he was restored and recalled with the words, follow me. Jesus gave Peter the chance to rid himself of the guilt of what he had done and he took away his shame with this invitation to once again, follow me. Last week, we talked about the relationship between accountability and proximity. Jesus had spent years with Peter and Jesus is also Jesus, right? Peter's rededication to following Jesus and the transformation that he, that he undergoes, this is one of the main facets of the book of Acts, which comes next in the Bible. But I, I, I wanna bring it back to, to our lives today. When we have failed, how do we recover, especially with, with people who aren't Jesus, who maybe not go full IHOP right away. How do we reconcile our guilt and our shame? This is John Baker. After attending college at Mizzou, he was an officer in the Air Force and he had some success in business. He found his life in ruins by the time he was in his 30s. He was alienated from his children, his marriage was failing, and he was an alcoholic. And he hit rock bottom and he began to attend Alcoholics Anonymous. As part of their 12-step program, John made efforts to make amends with people he had hurt. Step eight of the process of AA is to make a list of people you've harmed and be willing to make amends with them all. Step nine says, quote, to make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So as a part of this process, he, he wanted to make amends with his wife, Cheryl, and they began attending church together. They attended Saddleback out in California, Rick Warren's church. And it was there that he rekindled his Christian faith 
and he eventually merged Christian principles with AA's 12-step program, and he created something called Celebrate Recovery. This is a biblical 12-step program, and today it's utilized by over 7 million people. John did the hard work of accepting accountability, and he sought restoration with the people he hurt. But he wasn't, in his own mind, reduced to the worst decisions he'd ever made. And as a result of his recovery from failure, innumerable people have found healing and hope and a path to restoration. I think John Baker embodies uh, what we read in Romans 12. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You know, when we have done something we shouldn't or we have left something we should have done undone, that's guilt when we perceive ourselves or if others perceive us as, as unworthy, that's shame. But all we can do is what's possible as far as it is up to us. And so in, in, to, to lend some helpful start to, to get us thinking about that, I would offer you the following from Gary Chapman's Five Languages of Apology. Some of us have heard of the five love languages Gary Chapman and Jennifer Thomas offer the following kind of aspects of apology. And I think we would do well to incorporate these phrases into our vocabulary. These are excellent ways to start the process of restoration as far as it is up to us. And they all start with R, which I love. There's regret, which is saying, I'm sorry. We can accept responsibility, I was wrong. We can ask for restitution. How can I make it right? We can show evidence of repentance. I want to change. And we can request forgiveness. Can you find it in your heart to forgive me? Each of these are kind of a different aspect of maybe something somebody needs to hear from us, depending on what the scenario is. I don't know what that might look like for, for us. We all have different things we carry with us, of course, but... Again, I think these are excellent ways to begin that process of restoration. And we could spend time on each of these, uh, but these all get, get at this from a different angle and we would do well to put them into use. Jesus predicted Peter's restoration before his betrayal. And our God's grace is available to us at all times. I love what we read in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In the eyes of God, grace is available to us at all times. We are not reduced to the worst decisions we've ever made. Jesus will forgive us, friends. People may need some time. And unfortunately, that's part of the consequences. We may be ready to pursue restoration, but the person we injured may not be. They may never be. Our, our desires may not line up. That's why we can only do what is possible as far as it is up to us. But the difference between Christianity and cancel culture is that while both acknowledge that actions have consequences, our faith in Christ compels us to not only acknowledge the reality of consequences, but to pursue restoration as well. And every, amen. Let's pray. 
God, thank you so much uh, for the chance to be together, to hear from your word, to be reminded of the good news that when you look at us, you don't see the sum of our sins, but you see us as righteous, not because of what we have done for you, but because of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And God, we also know that that we're called not to just remain in sin, but to follow you. Jesus tells us that that it's so important to to live at peace with our brothers and sisters that if if we've got something we should resolve, that, that we should leave worship. We should leave our gift at the altar and go make it right. Because God, you desire that not only would we be in right relationship with you, but that we would be right in relationship with one another. And so God, for all the ways that we fall short, we ask for your forgiveness and we thank you for your grace. We also ask that you would supply us with the courage that when it is possible, that we would seek restoration with those we've wronged. God, thank you for the great example of Peter who had every good intent whose reactions we can identify with whether that's jumping headfirst into the water or denying that he even knew Jesus we can find ourselves somewhere on that spectrum so we thank you for the good news that recovery from failure is possible and we ask that as you have forgiven us we would forgive others. We ask all these things in your son's name, amen.